0: All blocked. Thanks to Advanced Security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced Security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply.
1: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, October 6th. 6th. Apparently, yes. I say the word sixth weird. Mm-hmm. Revenge of the Sixth. Uh, all right. For Well, anyway, we have an interview with Kermit Capital today. <laughs> it was fun. We right. talked X, Slack. Lots of Amazon. He actually gave us some interesting insights on Amazon. He used to work there, Yeah. so uh, that was an interesting tidbit as well. And then before we get to our interview, we have our stories for the week. What do you have?
0: Yeah, I got Roblox, so there's a rumor. They probably leaked it that they're going public, Um, and I think it's a very interesting company. Even more interesting maybe than Epic Games itself um, in the gaming space, so really excited about that. Um, and there's no numbers, but it's just going to be fun to talk about anyways, and I think it's a company people should know how it works because it's really popular.
1: Okay, and I have The Art of Selling. There was a pretty good article that came out this week, so I'll talk about that. And then, as always, we have our current state of FinTwit, and on the back half, we have Hot Water, Fuck, Mary Kill, and Anecdotal Evidence. Also, this is a good time to mention we have a YouTube now, so if you feel Mm -hmm. like seeing our faces, I know we say this every time, feel free to head on over and watch. I mean, I guess some. Some people like to watch podcasts. Some people do, which makes yeah. no sense to me. But I mean, if you guys like it, feel free to head on over.
0: Yep, and there'll um, be extra clips, like short stuff. If you're not gonna want to watch a full episode, maybe yeah, probably or some highlights. Highlights from the episodes. Yeah.
1: Okay, let's go.
2: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder. Chitchat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chitchat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode.
1: Welcome in. I'm going to kick things off with my story for the week: the art of selling. This week, Ian Cassell is it? Ian Cassell? Ian? Cricel. Cassell. Cassell. So, he published an article titled Portfolio Turnover is the Price of Progress. And I found this because you retweeted it. It was a really mm-hmm. good article and it was really interesting. The basic premise of it was that he was surprised how high his portfolio turnover really was when he calculated it, and that maybe it's not actually that bad of a thing mm-hmm. to have high portfolio turnover. Um, Depending but, on your strategy. Right, and I For, pulled yeah. a few quotes from the article that I thought were fascinating. He writes, with the rise of private equity and venture capital, everyone is trying to invest in public markets with the same permanent capital mantra. The lower the turnover, the more cerebral and thoughtful you appear to be with the initial investment decisions. Nothing looks better than being right from the very beginning. He goes on to pretty much say, "The at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is performance. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like people are sort of
0: over-glorifying the whole buy and hold strategy? It's very popular right now. Well, it feel, I don't want to just try to zig while the whole market's sagging just for the whole sole reason that they are sagging with everyone just like buy and hold, never sell, blah, 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 all that stuff. But it is quite popular at the moment. I think people underestimate uh, the selling process and actually how much thought you need to put into that because people are very... Well, historically, pretty bad at selling, and it's, it's something you got to work on if you're going to have any sort of active strategy.
1: Yeah, I, it feels like it should be more of buy and hold as long as management executes. Yeah, what is it? It's called
0: buy and due diligence, right? Isn't that what he described? Something I, like that.
1: Yeah, I think so. He called it maintenance due. Okay, maintenance. maintenance due diligence. Ma- mm-hmm. um, but I, it does feel like a lot of people are just buy and forget and never look back
0: yeah you gotta buy an update like i mean every quarter at the minimum you know there's going to be a 10q i mean annuals even that's fine too but you got to keep that up to it and especially i don't know especially if it's a high growth name or a micro cap name which is what ian invests in there's a lot of things um you gotta look at maybe if you're investing in google not much upkeep but you're taking a lot less risk investing in that compared to something with a market cap below 300 million dollars
1: He also writes that there's three reasons he would sell. One, if the story changes for the worse. Two, when he finds something better. And three, if a company gets very overvalued. How much of not selling do you think ever comes down to ego? Like the Mm. unwillingness to be wrong. Like they don't – they're so afraid to be like, oh, shoot, I was totally wrong. And typically it has to do with price, right? If the price – even if the price is – If the price drops, they're, like, afraid to be, like, all right, I was totally wrong. If the price is doing well, I mean, what's the quote? Nothing changes sentiment like price.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. I think personally when I'm deciding to sell something, I do have to try to counteract the ego of, like, all right, I put in all this work. um, You're anchoring to some prices, things like that. Um, There are some emotional and psychological things at play. For these three things, though, um, story – you have a better opportunity or overvalued, what one's the hardest to sell for? I think the
1: hardest one to overcome is valuation. The, the, The hardest for people to recognize and because it's always easy to justify valuation. Yeah, true. And it's always easy to say, you know, they'll cont- just buy and hold buy and hold and as long as i have a long enough time horizon valuation doesn't matter well you know it does like
0: yeah
1: price does matter and if you can get a better return somewhere else you should um and so that just makes it tough i'm curious what you think is more important the initial due diligence or the maintenance due diligence the, the due diligence you're doing as you have the stock in your portfolio or the one pre-purchase decision
0: I think maintenance can give you a better advantage because it one allows you over, it probably takes maybe at least a year to become an expert on a company um, What I would probably classify as an expert. And that gives you an advantage over other investors because I think every investor does initial due diligence, but a lot don't do maintenance due diligence at least very well. And that can give you an advantage because if you know the company well enough, you know when it's time to either double your position or sell out of everything, probably before a lot of the other people, and that's that's important. You're not comp- you know necessarily competing against everyone, but you have to know when the story changes for the better or the worse.
1: Yeah, it is true. And once you, if you really, really know a business, like you know it down to the nitty gritty, the accounting and everything, you've read through the 10K, you can tell when something happens that you don't like. I, it, yeah, there's times when I've held companies where I'm like. That seems good. That seems fine. But there's also, when you really, really know a business, you're like, I don't like that. And you're able to basically recognize that and
0: diagnose it earlier than most people. Yep, agreed. Okay. um, That's it for pretty much my story. What about you? Okay. There was a leak. Uh, Probably from the company itself that roblox is going public in early 2021 They feel like a direct listing stock, uh, but there's no s1 yet So we don't have any of the numbers But I thought it'd be interesting to talk about because they are the most popular social platform for I think all It's either all children or just boys under the age of 13. So what is roblox? Um, I think a lot of people listening don't know what it is. It is according to their website they have a mission to bring the world together through play very broad, very vague, um, you yeah. know, classic Silicon Valley-type company. They say, we enable anyone to imagine, create, and have fun with friends as they explore millions of immersive 3D experiences, all built by a global community of developers. Does that make sense to you?
1: No. no. So, what, like, is it basically like a mix of Fortnite and Minecraft?
0: Uh, I think it's its own thing. So, they make it really easy for kids to build games, or adults, you know, to build a game with their tools and then oh, on the, Roblox, the kids build the games. People, themselves. yeah. So they have two million developers that build games using Roblox as tools, and they have hmm. millions, like a hundred times as many people that play the games. So it's kind of like they enable the games to be built, which are then played on Roblox, which is why they're such a large. Um, they're huge, like from so like um, a Really,
1: really. They've oversimplified the sort of game engine so that even the users themselves can create it. What's Mm -hmm. that saying where it's like you don't become a platform until the people on your platform make more money than you or something like that?
0: Yeah, kind of. I think Roblox is a big example of that. It's also similar to Facebook or Airbnb where they're not actually making the product. All they do is enable people to make the product for them, uh, which has been shown in the past to be a phenomenal business model when dealing with the Internet. Like I said, though, they have 2 million developers that create through the Roblox studio. So, you know, people create the games with their tools that people can play. Sounds like a really, really strong business model. Um, very yeah. creative. I don't know, I know the exact numbers of their margins, but I mean, I like that a lot. I'm get,
1: yeah, I, I did not know that's how it worked. I'm getting bullish over here, but I'm also starting to think. They're gonna put the like games as a service or platform mm. in their S one so much that the market <laughs> gives them a forty times I the sales. I know.
0: I know. I hope the market crashes before then, so they don't have an absorbent valuation. But they have an absurd amount of people that uh, play per month three billion engagement hours each month, and you can access content on any device. So it's kind of like I don't know. It's almost cloud or whatever. It's 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 weird. It's not like any other type of game. Um, but not to sound overly bullish here, but do, doesn't this have just an absurd ru- runway for growth, like almost an infinite runway for growth, sort of like someone like Facebook or Google?
1: Yeah, I mean once you have your users using it to develop – like it's, it is the Facebook model where yeah. they're, you know I use Twitter or there's companies that use Twitter or Facebook – to grow. I mean, they are growing on the platform. So the users mm-hmm. are growing on Roblox because they're building stuff
0: out for new users. And they're building out a business, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, can they
1: monetize it? Can the users yeah. that are building the I games? Think
0: they've, I think there's been $250 million mon- uh, in paid out to the, the developers so far. I don't know if that's the exact number, but something around there. That's crazy. And another note is they have an internal game engine, so they don't use Unreal or Unity, which... Mm-hmm. It's a little concerning because I, I did think that they were, like, the two big ones um, that were kind of taking over everything. Uh, so we did talk about Unity on that deep dive kind of a little, I don't know, compared to their valuation. Th- but that's another...
1: I think we were wrong on that. Uh, Unity and Unreal do sort of have, the like, the bulk of the market, but... I'm pretty sure EA has their own with Frostbite, yeah, true, true. and I mean, I think there's a lot more sort of engines that are built in-house.
0: Yeah, they may have, uh, we may have oversold that a tiny bit, but hey, that's all right. <laughs> um, all right, so another interesting part about Roblox, probably the last thing, is that they're more social for kids, and they try to strive for family-friendly content, and kids under 13 spend more time on Roblox than they do on YouTube, and I think that's just boys, but still, that's... A huge opportunity. And it's probably surprising a lot of people. Maybe concerning for YouTube, but there's a lot of time to be spent uh, among kids. Um, founder is still there, which is a good note. And he says their goal is to build a, a platform that enables people to play and build things digitally. How interested are you in the S1 on a scale of one to ten?
1: Oh, big time! Yeah, that's a I'd say ten. Ten,
0: 10 for sure. Um, it's going to probably trade at a forty times sales ratio, but it's
1: like going through my head right now all the possibilities. Because there's, like, this would really appeal to the secondary, or, like, the second derivative of gaming, which Mm -hmm. is esports or streaming. Yeah. And so, like, I imagine people really want to watch that so they can sort of model it and build off of what they're seeing on that. I'm just, like, trying to play it all out in my head. I'm getting very bullish.
0: Yeah, it's probably the most excited I've been for an S1 in a long time, very long time. Them and Airbnb um, and Procore, the underrated one, right? That's your deal. Yeah,
1: yeah of course, but they've been <laughs> stalling for a while. They're, okay. They're too long. Current state of finwit twit. Um, do you want me to go first? I've just got basically one. Yeah, go ahead. So apparently the market loves the fact that Trump did not die from COVID.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a tough thing to trade on. I know. A
1: few close calls like that and we could be up another 10%. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: know. It's kind of like the trade deal, but it's a serious thing.
1: I want Yeah. I mean, I think Twitter made the right decision with the whole like if you're hoping people die we're taking those tweets down. Yeah. And yeah, should be applied was, to
0: everyone, but yeah.
1: Right. And but the market responded <laughs> because he like yeah. pump faked us. Like it seems weird. Um, and then here's the other thing is there's no statistical correlation between what presidential party their, yeah. the what, what party the president is and how the market does. I actually pulled some stuff up, so I oh. wanted to clear this up because people tend to get this wrong, and for some reason, people tend to think Republicans, tax cuts, corporate yeah, tax
0: cuts, co- higher earnings. Correlates or whatever, they, they have that right. in their mind, yeah. Okay,
1: from 1926 to 2019, a Republican has been in office for 46 years, oh. a Democrat has been in office for 48 years in Pretty that story. time, When Republicans are in office, there's a compounded. There is an annual performance rate of S and P five hundred at nine point one percent. For Democrats, is fourteen point nine percent, almost five percent outperformance. And in reality, and so like, it honestly doesn't matter. It's just like fluke data, though. Yeah. Because like the greatest performer of all time was from nineteen. It was some Republican from nineteen twenty three to nineteen twenty nine. Right. Was it Coolidge or something? And I mean. It's It doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know how to put that across. It's, like,
0: It's the biggest fallacy for people investing into the market. I mean, sometimes it may be a good thing no matter what. to If there's a sell-off, maybe it's a good opportunity to buy because it's usually nonsense, but I don't know. A, I don't a, know why the markets haven't learned this. At nah, what point?
1: Because every four years, people are like, I wonder how they're going to react to a new president. It's like yeah. it's never mattered. The why would it matter this time? Yeah,
0: corporations are going to keep trying to make money. Um, I'm sure Amazon – doesn't really care they're gonna keep trying to dodge taxes no matter who's in office yeah uh, just
1: anyway that baffled me and so i wanted to get wanted to clear that up for anyone yeah, investing and on that's that a premise. big
0: that's a big uh thing when people talk about like if someone's a kind of a novice um they're trying to talk about it, like yeah the election you know who knows what the market's going to react it's like that just that's a big sign to me if that someone's um not legit if they talk yeah. about that
1: all right what's yours uh what do you have okay
0: so there was all right. Jesse Livermore, who is a pseudonym, um, very smart guy, though. He writes for O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Um, uh, He doesn't work there, but I think they just allow him to publish things. And he publishes stuff that's uh, way over my head. But he had this nice note that uh, in 1991, the Japanese bubble had their real estate land value worth $20 trillion. So that was more than 20% of the entire world's wealth and Japanese land under the emperor's palace about three quarters of a mile square mile, excuse me. Was estimated to be worth the same as the entire land in California. What a <laughs> bubble.
1: How I guess that makes me think, like,
0: whenever I'm thinking about a market like, oh, this is a bubble. How yeah, it's more just, a bubble really should be. It's more speculation. Like a bubble is when things get so out of hand that people like it's like they it's like their lives depend on it that they're um that the thing keeps going on. But what was even more interesting was that uh, Ben Carlson from Animal Spirits and Ritholds tweeted about how, you know, the Now Show Japan stuff doesn't really make sense because that was the biggest bubble of all time. Wall Street Cynic, who is actually Jim Chanos. I know there are all these people that are private on Twitter, but just because they're, uh, you know, hedge fund managers and stuff, they got to stay anonymous. He said that $20 trillion figure was a little over five times Japan's 1991 GDP level. Right now, residential real estate in China is valued at over four times their 2020 GDP And that's before you include commercial, raw land, et cetera. When Jim Chano's tweets about something like that, I get a little concerned, like, all right, maybe I should not get anywhere close to Chinese real estate. Yeah,
1: it it makes me it makes me really want to hone in on like a market niche that I actually understand.
0: Yeah, it makes me very cautious uh, for those Asian stocks right now. Um, Okay, that's Uh, one more. Sorry, one more. Um, another this is a little more another one complicated from Jesse Livermore but it just shows that uh, there's a nice thread here that stock returns basically in the last um, I think three years have almost been from all valuation um, re-rating for u.s. growth stocks so I think gosh what were the returns like 22% for u.s. growth stocks only 1% of that was from actual growth in income 22% of that was valuation re-rating which is almost as bad as Japan growth in 1990. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that, but another concerning thing.
1: It Yeah. I mean, all you got to do is look at the like, aggregate multiples on some of the benchmarks, you know? Yeah. Like NASDAQ, sales multiples, stuff like that. It just, I mean, it's definitely concerning. It's concerning, yeah. And you have to have super high conviction if mm-hmm. you're buying some of these. Co- I know, and people tend to be like, well, you know, growth rates are higher so it deserves a higher multiple and it's like growth rates come down they yeah. aren't like they don't stay at 100% forever mm-hmm. and and we're actually uh, Brady our producer is currently working on a spreadsheet um, of like the top seven some of the top 75 companies we came up with a list of 75 and we Is this do, for
0: the M- school? No, oh, just generally we cool. want to work on it it's, it's nice.
1: the first 20 years how does revenue growth what happens to revenue growth and it should be basically this declining line right no matter how good the companies are and uh, you just have to have ultra high conviction if you're buying them at these multiples that they're going to be able to sustain a ridiculous growth rate
0: yeah and the multiples don't matter until they do like yeah and they come down fast um okay
1: that's going to do it for current state of fintuit we have our interview up next with kermit capital what specifically did you like
0: the Alteryx discussion and the Slack discussion. I mean, those are two companies he knows inside and out. He's a data analyst. Um, he's not a professional investor, but he has you know a lot of experience, and he has a lot of experience working as a data analyst, which gave him some nice insights on Alterx, why someone would use it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just thought that was great, very insightful.
1: The other part that I really liked, he's, he's followed by Slack CEO, yeah. Stuart Butterfield. Funny response when we asked him, we're like, you know, does it cloud judgment to be close with executives? Mm -hmm. He gives a funny response. So feel free to listen to that. Here you go. Today we are welcomed by Kermit Capital, at least uh, for anyone on Fintwit, you probably know him as Kermit Capital. Um, He is a data analyst, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, So before we get into what you do, Kermit, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. And like I was saying before we started recording, big fan of chit-chat money. And um, I would definitely credit you all uh with getting me bullish on Square when <laughs> you first talked about that last year and it was kind of dead money. So I'm I'm very thankful for that uh fundamental we're analysis.
0: We're glad, we're glad about that. Yeah, long cash app, right?
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Um,
0: So why don't you describe
1: a little bit about your background, what you feel, if you have one, is your specialization in investing? Is there like an area or an industry that you think you have a knack for?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So like you said, I'm a data analyst at a private SaaS company in the commercial real estate space. Uh, My background is uh, I have a degree in industrial and systems engineering. uh, And I kind of stumbled into active investing. Um, just because of stock-based compensation at the two companies that I worked at prior to uh, the one I'm at now, which was Amazon and Grubhub. So like a yeah. humongous portion of my compensation was in stock and I was kind of living and dying over the stock price because uh, I wasn't really diversified or knew anything about investing and you know just kind of keeping tabs on, on the stocks uh, yeah, because I, I wasn't really like paying attention to anything else. But uh, to get to your point on like, uh, what sort of my circle of, of competence uh, is generally, um, I would say like e commerce and logistics, um, consumer facing like tech enabled companies, uh, and I'd say SAS. Um, and, and most of my conviction in uh, those industries is just from like firsthand knowledge of like either working at those kinds of companies or using those types of products or services. And I try to to the best of my ability, buy what I own uh, or buy what I use um, with some exceptions.
0: Right, right. And it looks like you have about 20 holdings in your portfolio. I may be wrong. That's what you post on Twitter, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that fluctuate at all? And do you have any of your money in passive investments, anything else besides those ones that you do, I guess, through Twitter?
2: Yeah. Um, So it's been condensed over the last year or so. And I think it's going to uh, condense further. I think it's important, like as investors to acknowledge that we're, our portfolios, or at least mine is a work in progress and it will be for like Mm -hmm. the foreseeable future, you know, like our strategies change, our philosophies change. Um, you know, I would totally freely admit early on, I was more of a gambler or like, you know, a trader, you know, um, without realizing (laughs) it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I'm trying to pivot more towards like, like I was saying earlier, like buying things that, I understand, like I understand the value prop, that kind of thing. Right. Um, uh, so, so yeah. And then, regarding passive investments, um, you know, I put in the max annual allotment to my four hundred one k every year, okay. um, and I, I have a lot uh, allocated in that, and that's pretty standard Vanguard stuff. So, VTSAX, VTIAX, uh, uh, Vanguard Total Stock Market and International. Um, and, uh, I have luckily enough, uh, in that, that I have like a personal, um, I don't know what you call it, consultant or whatever through Vanguard. You have to have like, uh, meet some minimum. And that's been interesting to talk to them because it's like talking to people who are like all passive, like, right. like if you talk to them, they're like, sell every stock you have, put it all in like index funds and ETFs and stuff. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> i'm not gonna do that you know it's not nearly as fun either (laughs) um Um,
0: yeah that makes sense is that yeah and then you just have what about 20 um for your personal holdings does that i mean you said you wanted to come down probably Mm -hmm. or do you have a range you want to get to like 8 to 15 something like that
2: yeah um i talked to uh like friends of mine who've like done a little bit more reading on this and apparently i guess like the optimum like the risk reward ratio is somewhere around 15 to 17 like if you have less than that, that's sort of like you're, you're putting your eggs away too much, like in one basket or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think right now my feeling is I, I'm in a few biotech names that I thought that I understood. But yeah. then talking to some people who really know it, I'm just <laughs> like, you know what? <laughs> uh, this feels more like a gamble than, a, than an actual investment. So I yeah. might, but then of course, uh, watch it like as soon as I sell it, it's up like 30x you know, in the next two, three years. So that's sort of what I'm weighing right now.
0: Okay. Okay. And then, uh, you know, for your core holdings, the stuff that makes up the majority of your portfolio, when does, Mm -hmm. you know, valuation come into the equation? Are you a big trimming guy or is it kind of the Molly Fool style of, uh, what do they call that? Um, add to your winners, add to your winners. winners Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I'm definitely um, uh, more along the lines of the motley fool philosophy. Uh, although I have branched out uh, over the last few years, um, but to answer your question about valuation, um, I'm not very like interested in like analysis paralysis when it comes to like finding the right entry point or finding the right buy points, and mm-hmm. in terms of like price to sales or um, you know that kind of thing. Um, But I will look at that stuff, and I think a good resource for that is uh, Bessemer Venture Partners Cloud Index. If you go to their homepage, they list, like, all the big SaaS names, and they sort of, like, have a table that that shows, like, price to sales or forward, like, next 12 months, uh, EV to sales, um, efficiency scores, which is, like, the rule of 40, basically, calculation for each company. Uh, And so I do kind of pay attention to, like, a relative valuation, but, like, in a strict, like isolated silo this is how this company is doing i don't know how help that helpful that is nowadays you know yeah. in this world it's like super overvalued
1: <laughs> yeah what uh what would drive a decision to sell for you is it mostly in the business operations is it your thesis was wrong entirely or is it ever a time where it's like
0: it yeah, makes up value- too much of
1: this portfolio. Like you oh,
0: said, 25% of your portfolio now, you got to trim a little bit. Portfolio like management as well,
1: yeah. And then maybe, I mean, does valuation ever drive it a, a sell decision for you?
2: It never drives a sell decision for me, at least for now. Um, uh, that's how I felt like. Um, uh, but to to sort of like answer your question around selling in general, like I think we talked a little bit about like um, – like under realizing that I don't fundamentally understand the business is yeah. one one way that I might consider selling another one for me is like in general like um I try to initiate a position and then learn more about the business over time and if I gain more conviction or my conviction sort of maintains throughout like a few quarters and stuff I'll like add and add um, but if my conviction sort of doesn't change or like this isn't a business that I could see myself owning for like 10 years or more, um, then I might get out of that initial like first first purchase uh, in favor of consolidating. Um, yeah, and then the busted thesis uh, overall. Um, but that's that's a skill that, um, you know, is, is easier like said than, than done. Like yeah. being able to filter out that noise and really understanding if your thesis is busted is, is a non-trivial task, I think.
0: Have you, have you found that the starter positions help you at all? Like, does it help you track them? Does it help you do more research on the companies at
2: all? Yes, I think so. For me personally, it does. Um, although sometimes I, I get like right now, for example, beyond meat is a starter position for me. Um, and the story is one that I generally like, um, you know, but, um, I'm kind of in that middle phase where I'm not sure if this is one that I want to keep adding to, especially relative to the other things that I own. Um, you know, would I want to put new money towards this? I'm not sure. And if I'm not willing to do that, should I really be in this position in the first place? No, yeah,
1: that makes I, sense. I think we've all been in that situation where it's like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll create a <laughs> starter position or something like that. And then you're like, I don't know nearly enough about this business (laughs) and so it's just ends up being a discard which I guess at that point it's better that it's not a large makeup of your portfolio yep um and then Amazon uh, I think you already touched on this uh it's still your largest holding are there there any concerns for you I I know it probably ended up being a great like a a great thing to be paid in stock-based compensation there um were we talking about that before the show? Or? Uh,
0: no, so that was during, during. that was during. Yeah. Okay.
1: But yeah. Um, are there any concerns with that making up so much of your portfolio now?
2: Um, on a business fundamentals, uh, perspective from that perspective, not really, you know, uh, I mean, if you look at the overall business, this is this thing. I mean, I know this is like not an opinion you should like share or whatever, like. You shouldn't fall in love with your stocks or your companies you know you don't know the future's unknowable but this feels pretty bulletproof you know especially in this environment um when you consider aws and how it's printing money you know and the advertising business became the third biggest advertising business in the world you know out of you know relatively out of nowhere you know a couple years ago um and then the retail business which i know the best because i worked in operations uh there and knowing like when, when i left there four or five years ago and having the perspective of interviewing at other logistics companies like ups or um like peapod which says like grocery delivery um back then even back then i was like amazon is light years ahead of everyone Really? Uh, yeah <laughs> i was like this is not uh this is not a fair fight here okay. so uh and my conviction in that has only um increased uh and i could give you like one example for Amazon, um, if if y'all want, or if you want to move oh, on. With yeah, you. go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so I left right before Kiva, which is Am- which is now known as Amazon Robotics, mm-hmm. um, was uh, just starting to uh, get, getting integrated in the fulfillment centers. Uh, so Amazon fulfillment centers are like a big giant warehouse where they, you know, bring in inventory, put it on the shelf, which is now makes it available to buy on the website. Uh, And then uh, everything outbound, which is like post buy button out the door to UPS or a sortation center and everything like that. Uh, And these buildings are huge. So the building I worked at was 1.25 million square feet. It was three stories. It was like an enormous building. You couldn't, you could not see from the parking lot, the other end of the building, if you were on one end of the building, it's like enormous. Um, And the biggest labor uh, cost associated with that was the stowing and picking um, departments? So these are the departments where people are, um, you know, putting items on the shelf and taking or or taking them off, putting them in a tote and getting them uh, fulfilled. Um, so we're talking about at any given time like 400 to a thousand people doing these jobs, and these jobs back then you were walking like 10 miles a day, every day. Uh, so if you, and they were located in like suburban areas of ru- of rural towns, like. You know, right. so how many people can sustain walking 10 miles a day for 10, 12 bucks an hour, you know, uh, all day and all night, all year long? There, like eventually, like the turnover was, was starting to catch up on itself, you know? Uh, you burned but, out. Yeah, exactly. There's just not that there's not enough people who are willing to do that, you know, um, like indefinitely. Um, But what Kiva did was it turned a job that required 10 miles of walking a day to a job that's just standing and picking stuff off of a shelf and putting it in a tote, you know? So it it dramatically like increased the potential pool of people who could do that kind of work. uh, And it also dramatically reduced the number of people that are needed in the first place to do that job. Um, So, I mean, and before, so when I knew that and I couldn't kind of saw like how unsafe, like working at a UPS distribution facility is in comparison. Um, uh, You know, in some of the other places I checked out, it was, uh, I I got a lot of conviction out of that. You know, there's a bunch of other reasons too. Have you
1: added to your Amazon position at all?
2: No, I haven't. Um, And uh, not to say I wouldn't, um, but I think that uh, my money would be better served elsewhere, uh, like new money. But I am very bullish about Amazon over the long term.
1: Okay, and then you also paid a lot of attention to Glassdoor ratings, which mm-hmm. I, I I like that. Um, why do you do that? And then how much does that actually weigh on your thesis when you buy a stock? Like, does it ever deter you completely if there's like bad Glassdoor ratings?
2: It's a ter- it's a turnoff. Um, uh, it's not the only. It's one data point among many. I think my time at Grubhub. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if y'all fo- are familiar with the Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's it's basically, it talks about companies getting disrupted. Um, and uh, it's one of the things that, that are talked about. In my time at Grubhub, I found that like the culture ultimately was what was getting us disrupted by companies like DoorDash um, and Uber Eats. Um, and so uh, like, I feel like I have uh, the ability to to read the tea leaves on something like Glassdoor reviews um, and sort of identify those telltale signs of like a company where innovation is just not it's just it's just really hard. There's a lot of friction to getting new products or services or like improvements uh, pushed out the door. And so I view Glassdoor as you know there's the quantitative like data like what is the rating, what is it trending, how do they view the CEO as it's just one data point. But it's, it's not really that valuable if you're not like drilling deeper into the actual reviews and seeing what people are actually saying and sort of sifting through like the people who have had sour grapes and identifying like, is this a place where like actual talented people can't get anything done? Uh, and and if, if I get that sense, then, you know, I'm not really, it's going to make, it's going to turn me off. And that's how I kind of feel about Teladoc, uh, for example. I know yeah, it's a that- hot one and people love it, but I don't know.
1: It's, yeah, I mean, that's the whole conscious capitalism principles, you know, you're generating not only shareholder value, but hopefully stakeholder value across the board. And those employees are the ones that in turn generate shareholder value. So there's definitely merit to having a place like Glassdoor and being able to figure out what do the employees think? Because if they aren't happy, and obviously there's going to be certain like people have bad experiences at any company, but if you're starting to see it as a recurring theme, that can be a h- huge issue.
2: Yeah. Um, and, yeah, then- and just, I mean, just one question for you. And on that point, like if you're applying for jobs and one of them, uh, if you're getting an offer from Teladoc, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm checking the Glassdoor rating.
0: Yeah. And if I'm
2: getting an uh, if I'm getting a review from another competing company, you know, with maybe a similar offer, and a much better last door rating, I'm probably more likely to take that other offer. So that's so not not only existing employee employees, yeah. but prospective ones as
0: well. Yeah, it's an indicator that they might not be able to get the best talent in the future, which that's not gonna help them drive any competitive advantages.
1: Um, now, we do wanna talk a lot about data because you are a data analyst. Um, and so we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. Something that we haven't paid a lot of attention to but we think is a valuable tool. And the way we came across this was your Twitter, uh, oftentimes you'll tweet out out like different charts and it makes it really easy to see. And that, I guess the term for that is data visualization. I'm curious, um, what sort of a, well, first of all, what value do you think data visualization provides? And then what sort of edge do you think being a data analyst gives you in investing?
2: Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I've worked at uh, like several companies now, like publicly traded companies and private companies as, as a data analyst. In my experience, I can't speak for other people, is being a data analyst is almost like being like a congressional aide, or like yeah. like and like being like a, an assistant to someone who has to like get down and dirty in political bureaucratic like situations and help people make a case, like building a case for something that may or may not be in other people's best interests. Usually like thinking about stuff like in a meeting, um, you know, like a cross-functional meeting with different departments, you know, where uh, we need to like institute a new process, like uh, to improve customer experience or like lower costs or, you know, that kind of thing. And so being able to like visualize a problem uh, and or a potential solutions impact in the most like bite-sized way that can like capture everyone's attention and at the same time be like as undeniable as possible. Cause so much, so much of what you're doing is like defending your data or defending your thesis um, of what's happening in the business to people who are not receptive to you just from this, from like zero, you know, from like the beginning. Um, So yeah. So I would say, uh, the importance of, vis- of data visualization is like making things digestible, painting a picture uh, for people who may or may not be technical or may or may not be like receptive to your argument. And then uh, what sort of advantage do you do you get as a data analyst? It's, it's around like being the subject matter expert in oftentimes really murky waters. Like data is usually messy as hell, uh, especially when you're joining across like several data databases. Um, that aren't designed to talk to each other. Um, you know, being able to uh, really get down in the weeds and answer people's off-the-cuff questions that are like usually critical about where your data is coming from um, is is uh, you're, you know being a subject matter expert uh, in that kind of stuff and being able to answer people's questions uh, gives you a little bit of political capital too in these larger organizations.
1: Have you ever had a scenario where? Um, like those cross-functional meetings that you just discussed. Have you ever had one where you try to present someone just raw data and they're like, no, not receptive to it. And then you're like, here, let me paint the picture. And they're like, okay, that makes more sense. But like, it's the exact same thing. Yeah.
2: Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm struggling to find like a particular, like a specific a, uh, example to illustrate to you, but it happens all the time. Okay. Uh, and I think that's the value. That's the value of something like Tableau. Uh, which is owned by Salesforce, which is what I have a lot of my experience um, with in data visualization. Um, if you don't, if you're not familiar, it's like a web-based, um, you know, data visual- visualization tool um, that allows you to customize like what your, you know, what range of data you're talking about or filter or sort the kind of data that you're looking for on the fly. Um, and just some, something as simple as like the load time to like, Uh, let's check out the midwest versus the northeast you know the same question you know that kind of stuff it could kill a meeting you know if it's taking like two or three minutes for the thing to load you know what Uh, i mean they'll just we'll just move on (laughs) into something else and you've already like lost your point Uh, yeah
0: that makes sense that makes sense all right well one company that we think is similar to Tableau, but we really have no idea. We're kind of just reading stuff online. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> this is why we wanted to talk to you about this. Yep. It is Alter-X. Um, What value do they provide to their customers and why would a business or, you know, someone like you choose to use them?
2: Yeah. So um, I'll just uh, add a disclaimer here. I, I am long Alteryx um, and I've also never used Alteryx myself um like as a, as a as a data analyst however um as an investor reading through their slides and their value proposition and their statistics that they post um, i their value proposition is what like heavily heavily resonates with me in my work experience um, and like what a potential solution to like the day-to-day struggles of being a data analyst would be right. um, so you know buyer beware like do your own due diligence you know um like maybe if you need to use it to to see it like uh to like get the value prep uh, go okay. for it um but uh, i have like the um like something from their slide deck right here so it says altrix enables analysts and data scientists to discover share and prep data prep is really important perform analysis statistical predictive Uh, prescriptive, and spatial, and deploy and manage analytic models. So here's some of their stats. Uh, Today's analyst tools and processes are insufficient. 62% have to depend on others within their organization to perform at least some steps in the analytic process. When I talked about that value prop, like one of the benefits of being a data analyst, being able to answer other people's questions. Uh, They might not be subject matter experts. That's exactly what they're talking about. Um, 69% are not satisfied with the quality of the final input. People questioning your your data analysis, what you're providing in meetings. 81% are not satisfied with the overall speed of the analytic process, and that's mostly talking about um, like cleaning up data, dirty data, to make it uh, like uh, analyzable. Um, and then they say 60 billion dollars per year are wasted on analysts doing repetitive manual work in spreadsheets. Absolutely, uh, six billion hours per year spent working in spreadsheets. 26 hours per week wasted. Working in spreadsheets, eight hours per week wasted repeating the same data test. Like that's a lot. It's a lot of time.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you, can and attet- like, you can attest to that.
2: Absolutely, that is like so much of my time was like okay. you know present, like doing a ton of work on a on a on a like data model, and then someone like a higher up like questioning it, and then my boss telling me to spend a week or two like making sure that I've solved whatever question they, they have, even if it doesn't even make any sense.
1: So where does Alterx sit in? sort of the value chain. Let's say I'm a firm with um, a bunch of raw data, a bunch of different Excel spreadsheets, and I'm not able to get my point across. Do I come to Alteryx and say, Hey, here's a bunch of data. Can you basically organize it for me? Or is there like a subscription one size fits all kind of thing where I can subscribe and use Alteryx's tools? How does that work?
2: So Alteryx has a land and expand model. Um, that provides like various um, sort of clients that you can download on your desktop, uh, and they're working on a SaaS uh, tool. Um, but basically, what they're uh, what they do, and this is covered in their analytic market landscape uh, slide deck from their investor uh, slide deck, is they help uh, data analysts or data knowledge workers catalog, prepare, describe, and diagnose, and then uh, provide predictive and prescriptive. Um, uh, prescriptions uh, to your data so it's supposed to capture like that whole life cycle of beginning to end um, sort of data analysis all the way from the just the very beginning of just like uh, cataloging it all the way to uh, doing predictions and and prescriptive stuff whereas their competitors are usually siloed to particular subsets of those um, of that landscape.
0: Okay. Does that give them any sort of moat? Um, because the worry we have when investing in one of these companies is we don't understand it enough. Um, we, there's a ton of them out there, and we don't know whether it, they're going to eat each other's market share and yeah. compress margins. And to
1: touch on that, there's times when it might be an adjacent competitor. Like I, I don't know if Tableau and Alteryx are di- direct competitors. Yeah. And we just hear, we just hear data visualization or data analytics, and we mm-hmm. assume. Well, wow, they're all competing. I mean, is yep. there, Alteryx independently, do they have a moat?
2: So um, to answer your question quickly on Alteryx versus Tableau, Alteryx and Tableau are both, um, uh, they work together and they also work against each other. Um, so often you'll see data analysts preparing Alteryx and then plug it into Tableau for the visualization part, but you can do visualization in ta- in Alteryx as well. Um, so from a moat perspective, I think Tableau has has less of a moat Um, than Alteryx does in the data analytics space um, just because they don't have as much, uh, as many products or services around uh, data, data prep. Um, uh, But other uh, aspects of the moat, it's founder, it's a founder led company. Dean Stoker has been the, uh, is the founder and CEO of the company. Uh, And what I really like about him is he's an excellent um, speaker uh, and he can explain the, he understands the landscape and the, and the pain points of a data analyst uh, really well. I know from firsthand experience that he's putting his finger right on the pulse of of what the pain of a data analyst is. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also understands uh, at a high level that there's a shortage of talented data analysts and data scientists in the world. And so much of what Alteryx is doing is try to increase the pool of data analysts, data scientists, and and their efficiency. So not only is the whole value prop of Alteryx to like make data analysts and, and data scientists more efficient. It's also trying to just increase the total number of people who consider themselves to be data analysts or data scientists. Um, okay. And so in that way, I view the value proposition as similar to something like Twilio and software developers and that, yes, you can, you know, you can build all the Twilio tools from scratch if you really wanted to, but why, why would you want to when there's an off the shelf solution right, right here to help you get from, zero to 60 and you could focus on what's really important at your company. Right. Okay, that That's makes cool. sense.
1: Um, the reason we ask a lot of uh, that we really wanted to talk Alterx is because they, a lot of people discarded them after the last quarter. And uh, I saw some tweet and it was like, nothing changes sentiment like price. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's funny because so many people Ark Invest included sold their entire stake yep. all because of one quarter in this sales slowdown. Yep. Um, Do you think the thesis is still intact despite the last quarter?
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, when you talk about ARK Invest uh, and and other folks who are selling out of Alteryx, um, I think they're probably thinking uh, over the next two, three, four quarters, Alteryx might have continued headwinds based on the macro landscape of covid Um, so if you've been following their, you know, earnings announcements and stuff, like they had exposure, like a non-trivial amount of exposure to travel and hospitality, um, you know, the industries that have been hurt hard, uh, by COVID, but at the same time, they've also landed new customers. Um, you know, if you, if you like listen to the kind of companies that they're, that they're landing, it's a lot of like government institutions, um, places that are not, you know, customers that aren't like going anywhere. Um, you know, during or after COVID. So the way I view it is like right now they're trading some customers that are you know getting hurt right now for uh, for better long term bets. But over over the long term, like this problem is not going anywhere. Of like cleaning up messed up data um, that nobody wants to do this type type of work. And uh, once like people start using uh, like an effective product like this, um, they like demand you know that their companies have it you know in order to like be more efficient. So um, yeah, I think they'll have some continued headwinds, but I think the thesis is still intact. To
1: touch on that, you said, you know, they're not going anywhere. Companies don't want to do this. How hard is it for a startup to just be like, basically replicate um, what Alterx is doing here and say like, you know, uh, does it take lots yeah. of different trial and errors with businesses, like different use cases for them to figure
0: out all the different to build out to where Alteryx is now.
2: Do you have to have like a
0: hundred developers or, you know, is it someone that five, a five developer team can do, you know?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I can't really speak to like how difficult the product is to build, to build, mm-hmm. but what I can speak to is how difficult it is to build a community um, that'll advocate for your product um, the way that Alteryx has. Um, you know, I think that companies are resistant to adopt these types of uh, technologies, especially, especially when they're expensive. You know, I'd say like, the biggest weakness, the risk I see ahead for Alteryx is just how expensive the seats are um, for, for for Alteryx. Um, but uh, like I, I do view like um, their their work with ADAPT. Um, I don't know if y'all are familiar with with that, oh, but this no. is uh, ADAPT is advancing data and analytics potential together. It's their program that they initiated. Um, I think it was like around when COVID started. And so the whole purpose is they know that there's all these people who are losing job, their jobs because of the uh, coronavirus, uh, and so they've partnered with I think it's Udacity to offer a certification uh, program for free for people who've lost their job to get certified in Alteryx um, to get uh, to uh, you know get a job in data analytics. Um, so I think that type of work ultimately is the work that's hardest to replicate and the and the strongest moat for them over the long term.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Uh, all right, last question on anything data. This is not concerning Alterex, but do you have any underfollowed data-focused companies that any listeners should maybe, you know, get on the radar or possibly research more?
2: Yeah. So on my watch list uh, is a company called Domo. Um, I. I don't know a ton about this company, and I haven't used them um, like myself. But it's valued currently. Last time I checked, at one billion dollars valuation, they IPO'd back in 2018, and are up 43% since IPO. So they're not, you know, tearing uh, the roof off the place, but they're, you know, there they are growing. Um, they specialize in uh, business intelligence and data visualization. So a, somewhat of a competitor with with Alteryx. They're trading at five times EV to forward revenue, 23% revenue uh, growth year over year, 73% gross margins, pretty good. And a neg- but negative 30% um last 12 month free cash flow. So I think it's worth looking at.
0: Yeah, that does sound uh it's better than everything that's trading at 25 times sales right now. Exactly. So that's something to definitely watch out for. Keep
1: yeah, <laughs> on the watch list there. Um now another company that you've talked a lot about is Slack. Slack is uh it's almost polarized on Twitter. Like a lot of, you know, everyone's kind of has like a hot take on the, yeah. on the business. Among the investor community. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is the value of Slack to a business in your opinion? And do you see it actually being able to become an ecosystem of apps as opposed to just simply messaging slash workflow tool?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So off the off the top, like you know, going back to like investing theses or like principles, like, you know, when I talked about investing in what I own or what I use, like there's no product or service that I use more like frequently besides Twitter, which I don't invest in, uh, then Slack. <laughs> like I use Slack in my, like literally all day long at work. And then I use it after work in this coding bootcamp that I, that I am in. Um, and then I also use it in like an investing group that I'm in. Um, and, and I also used it in like other contexts before and I've used it at like the last two companies that I've worked at as well. Um, so, you know, it would be weird for me to not own it. Um, like after doing my due diligence and also knowing that the revenue is growing 50% and yada, yada. Uh, but, uh, to answer your question about the value of Slack to a business. So Slack, Slack is one of the few, um, software tools that is used, um, by everyone, at, at a company. So you can also think about Zoom. You can also think about like Gmail uh, or like Outlook or whatever. It's one of those, those few things that everybody across all departments use. So it, it has a it's a horizontal layer that cuts through all departments within a company um, and it enables collaboration between departments with integrations that are used heavily in siloed departments. So if you think about Atlassian's um, software tools, uh, like Jira, it's, you know, it's going to be used mostly by product and dev folks. But there's some information that's valuable to people in other departments. Like, hey, has this product released? Can we start marketing it? Hey, has this bug been fixed so support can know and get back to a, a client? Um, so those people can get, can get updates on Atlassian without having Atlassian licenses because there's integrations in Slack that'll tell you this is, our, this is ready to go, um, this thing that we need to know about. Uh, same thing with HubSpot or Zendesk. Um, you know, it, it gives uh, like a view into other SaaS companies. Even like um,
1: Datadog too, right?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I haven't done as much due diligence on, on Datadog. Okay. Um, okay. But, uh, you know, they have a ton of integrations. So uh, okay. as far as your question about like ecosystem of apps, they already have 23,000 apps in the app directory, 700,000 custom apps and integrations that are used weekly, and 820,000 active developers. And for context, Microsoft Teams, based on my research just going on, like their app uh, store only has 666 apps. Um, So like, will they catch up? Sure. But I think that there's something to be said about a $15 billion company having this much, like um, much of a robust app ecosystem compared to Microsoft.
0: Well, yeah. And then we're going to ask about Teams. Does that give them a competitive advantage? And do you see any other competitive advantages they have over Teams?
2: Yeah, so like a common theme you'll hear in investing in SaaS companies is sort of being vendor neutral, you know, or being agnostic. And Slack has this over Teams. So where Teams, you know, has Azure and the Azure ecosystem and, you know, uh, like products that'll compete with your data dogs and, you know, what name your SaaS company. Um, Slack is neutral to to that positioning. So they don't care really what um, you're integrating with on Slack. They even have a partnership directly with Microsoft Teams. Um, so they are like allowing, you know, anyone to integrate um, to them where Microsoft might not be able to say that uh, as well. Um, yeah. So some other th- thoughts about Teams is, you know, in my opinion, and I think it's more than just my opinion, the whole concept behind Teams was a defensive product. So like Ben Thompson from Stratechery, if, if you guys know who he is. Yeah, Uh, he's like a blogger, yeah. So he said, for Microsoft, getting customers to switch was never the goal. Uh, Like Instagram adding stories to remove the impetus for new users to even try Snapchat, Teams is a way to prevent Microsoft customers from even trying Slack, uh, from ever trying Slack. Um, And then Stuart Butterfield, uh, he tweeted in July, Teams has architectural limitations that prevent it from scaling to even 1% of the size of of our largest instances. So our enterprise customers couldn't even switch if they wanted to. Um, okay. you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that, um, you know, just because if you think of Azure and you know, how, how many customers they have on that and how, how fast they're growing, yeah. surely they can scale. Yeah. But I think it's, it's an interesting thing to think about.
0: Now, do you think the space at all that they've kind of built out themselves? I think they're building their own market. They, it was—it's really one of those zero to one things, um, classic uh, Peter Thiel type innovation there. But is it zero sum at all, or can they both win? And can someone else come in, that, you know, like Google or Amazon, and you know, all of them succeed as well?
2: Yeah, the way I think about the market is like, I think that they can be winners in this space. I don't think it's zero sum, and I think that there's some like companies or some organizations that it makes sense to be on Microsoft Teams for, um, like something like a government agency or a defense contractor. Maybe you don't have the needs of like, uh, you know, being integrated to to Jira and ServiceNow and all these other like, um, you know, SaaS or or uh, platform as a service, infrastructure as a service companies when you're, you're doing more like um, more of that type of work. Um, and, and you might have like security needs that are just like, not, uh, able to be like met by Slack for whatever reason. Um, but in my opinion, like Slack's value are with companies that deploy, deploy uh, software applications and need to have like a constant, like agile, um, sort of work environment where they need to communicate, uh, in real time about what's, what's going on and, and, and are constantly pushing new products and services. Um, and so where would I rather have my money personally, like in the $15 billion company, That's like, you know, their customers are, are going to potentially be other 15, 30, hundred billion dollar companies. I'm going to grow the seat count.
1: And it's, it's a bullish signal to me when you see all big tech chasing what they're doing. Yep. Like, you know, and, and we saw it with, I guess, Snapchat might not have had a great ROI, but like uh, Spotify. Yeah. Spotify, for example, you know, when people start copying the business model, that kind of thing, it, feels like something to pay a little more attention to. Um another note that I saw here is that Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack, follows you on Twitter. And we've had this debate here is if we had the largest, let's say like our largest holding was Spotify or something like that, Mm -hmm. would we, if we were presented with the opportunity to meet and get to know Daniel Eck or something like Mm -hmm. that, would we do it? Because we think on our end, maybe it clouds our judgment. Do you ever feel that? Do you think that uh investors can get to know management personally without it impacting their investing style?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it definitely clouds my judgment. Um okay. like uh, how would I feel I would I feel awkward like tweeting out that I sold out of Slack. <laughs> yeah, maybe see, a little. Maybe <laughs> a little <laughs> <And then laughs> see Stuart not you know Stuart sees that, you know. Um, but uh but I think that, that trade-off is worth it, you know? I, I mean yeah. like, you know, uh, I also have three other CEOs that follow me and I invest in those companies as well. Um, Okta, PagerDuty, um, and you. Uh, uh And so it's a similar, it's a similar thing there. Um, but like to, to talk about Okta, for example, Todd McKinnon on Twitter, like he, sh- he shares some like great nuggets on, on Twitter about his company and his leadership style. And for me, I put a premium on um, like strong leadership at a company. Um, I think it's like, a cheat code in investing, you know, like maybe f- people feel differently, but when you know that your CEO is like uh, a great leader, like a phenomenal leader, um, that's, that makes, that builds on my conviction. Um, so totally, uh, a risk, but, um, I do think that Twitter is, is a game changer for retail investors, giving us like visibility that we never had before. So no, I'll take okay. that trade off. 100%. yeah it's also
0: interesting to see all the corporate accounts what they're liking who they follow things like yes. that um that i that's an under the radar thing that i don't think a lot of people mm-hmm. are looking at where you can kind of get some future insights mm-hmm. all right yep. wrap up questions yeah these are our two final questions uh everyone probably knows about them kermit you probably know as well uh first one what's one financial saying that you disagree with
2: yeah and i don't know if this is like an official quote or not but i definitely see this around and it makes sense but um don't fall in love or get emotional about your investments, um, is, is one that I I slightly disagree with. So, I mean, I generally agree with this, uh, in terms of like uh, not flying off the seat of, you know, uh, whatever, like when you're making a decision, like you want to do your due diligence before you invest in a company. Um, and you don't want to like be overly emotional, but like my goal is to hold companies that I have high conviction in with high concentration for a long time, like 10 plus years um longer if it makes sense and like in order for me to sustain that level of conviction like i need to be interested in the business um and i need to like be willing to like follow the story um and, and, and i need to le- believe more in in the company than just the tam and the moat like i want to genuinely root for the leadership team to succeed i want to genuinely like uh root for the employees to succeed and if i don't like have that connection you know it's it's going to be just harder for me to sustain that, um, conviction and that hold over time. And like, I think square is a perfect example of that, what they're doing, the payday loan space, um, you know, what they're, what they're doing in the, in the banking space, those are all things that I can really get behind, uh, and makes it so much, uh, easier to hold it for the long term. And I think that's important.
1: Yeah. And that sort of passion drives like a higher inclination to continue researching as well. I think it, it keeps you interested in the business. Um, last question then what's one piece of advice you have for any investors
2: yeah and i touched on this before but you know some friends who aren't as into investing have asked me specifically for some stock picks i'm sure that that's probably happened to y'all too yeah. Um, yeah. but my advice to those people is like to to own what you know or own value props that you can understand or just tangible to you so some examples would be like you know if uh, i'd rather like suggest looking into Roku Roku as an investment over the trade desk for someone who's not, who's newer to investing, right? If they have Roku, they can see it, they can use it. I can like point to the value proposition, um, for e-commerce. Um, these are both another two great companies Etsy over Shopify. You know, there's much more likely of a chance that they like have ordered, uh, from Etsy and see it, you know, and Shopify is a little bit more abstract and then Slack versus something like you know, fastly, which is just gonna be a harder thing for them to understand conceptually and less likely for them to hold over the long term. So I would definitely um, you know, have a bias toward owning what you know or use.
1: Okay. That's gonna do it. Kermit, thank you for your time. Uh ha, ha, yeah, had a fun conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank,
2: thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Keep up the good work.
1: All right, welcome back in. Thanks again to Kermit Capital for joining us. Next, we have Hot Water. I have three. I three, think. I do too.
0: Okay. Well, so, whose turn is it? I think it's my turn. Yeah, you should go first. Okay. Uh, hot Water Whale Wisdom. You know that site where you can look at all the 13 Fs? Love that. Yeah, it's a good name. But there's a new site that I think has no chance of any well. So, it's called eToro, and there's a guy in there named Jay Smith. 32-year-old living in southern England who is an investor on there. His online name is Jane Jay, Nem- Jay Nemesis, okay? And 21,000 people on this site called eToro copy his trades with their own capital, $40 million. So if he buys FedEx, they do too. If he shorts the NASDAQ, they short it too. There is – I, I have never used eToro, but there's no way this ends well. Who is this guy? Jay Nemesis. He's is the he- new whale. Is he on Whale Wisdom?
1: Has he yeah, there's a, good t- the,
0: uh... there's a good tweet from this guy named David Schaul. Um, I, I don't know what he is, but he's a good follow on Twitter. It was like, quote, so how would you lose so much money? Uh, answer, a very sophisticated trader online, Jay Nemesis. He was on a roll, said it was a sure bet. Wait, what? What do you mean? Like, <laughs> like it's... I I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, There's no way that ends well. Everyone just copying each other's trades. Don't
1: borrow conviction.
0: No, as Matt Cochran did say, um, and we shall not forget. All right. Martin Screlly is back. Uh, This isn't really a hot water, um, but I just want to talk about it. He's blogging from prison like every week. Yeah. I just subscribed to his newsletter. Um, Substack? Martin Screlly's got a Substack? It's a free one from GoDaddy. uh Uh, yeah (laughs) he's talking about how um biotech stuff to his prison inmates and things like that sounds like it could be a fantastic sitcom Um, (laughs) i can't wait to actually read all the stuff it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting for sure he's actually kind of a genius but yeah
1: that's so He also
0: sounds like a total sociopath all right um there's another cool thing hot water i guess would be being a bandwagon fintwit investor um which we are you know sometimes everyone gets that at some point no, so this guy created a blog called the Invit. Eh, I don't know the name, but it's, it's called like the FinTwitter Index. Basically, FinTwitter Portfolio Index start just started out. It's plus. Uh, it's beating the S and P by three point two six percent during the fourth quarter. Can you guess what the five, any of the five largest holdings?
1: Yeah, I can guess all of them because that's our fuck Mary kill this week. Is the top uh, three? Okay. So, um, but I know the top three. It's what Fastly, mm-hmm. Roku, Lavango. I'm guessing C Limited and oh,
0: no, C's a little lower, but CrowdStrike, Square. Damn, it's concerning that it's Square. Feels so consensus. <laughs> Those square's run up so much, which is so disappointing because we yeah. we had to sell or whatever. But you know, yeah. Um. Okay, is that
1: all three? That's for you? all three for me. All right. There's a. I have a serious one to kick things off, which is eBay. I got, I got tagged in some article. Um from CNN and I'm not going to get into like all of it, but basically there was this blog like e-commerce bite or something I think is what it was called. Um, and it talked poorly about eBay and a bunch of the employees there and the ex CEO tried to scare her out of blogging. They sent this lady a bloody pig mask, threatening messages, live spiders posted her address on Craigslist for hookers and swingers (laughs) to come by. Um, sounded absolutely terrible. I recommend everyone go read it. I think they're out now. I think those employees executives? were fired and the executives had to leave. They got some great severance package, which is bullshit. But Yeah. Um, yeah, I just I got tagged in that. I wanted to share it. It, it was bad. It was
0: really bad. I'm um, glad I'm not investing in eBay.
1: Yeah, and then the Playboy SPAC is official. That, gosh, we have I to forgot talk that. about yeah. this. Yeah, we, it's... Uh, their mission statement is to, and I quote, create a culture where all people can pursue pleasure. Their two primary revenue drivers are categorized as sexual wellness and style and apparel.
0: I wonder how they do depreciation on the Playboy Mansion.
1: They. <laughs>
0: how do they write that down?
1: They. I think there was one that, like, one of their products was. Part of their revenue was categorized under, like, CBD sexual stimulus or uh, something like
0: that. I could see them doing a big CBD crossover. Apparently,
1: apparently, the board of the company that's taking uh, Playboy public through a SPAC is all male.
0: Makes, mm, yeah. That's, I mean. What a shocker there. It, it's not a shocker, but it's just, like, yeah. Would on. you ever buy this? No. Well, never say never. Even if there's value. Yeah, I mean, Would you? Y- you find value where you can get it. I mean, never say never. I mean, it's just just it's because it's best. a smut, just because a smut magazine or whatever doesn't mean you like me choosing not to invest in it. It's kind, of, it's like cigarettes. Me choosing not to invest in it yeah. doesn't change their cash flow. Right. So,
1: I mean, it's not like you're. I've always had this gripe with Altria as a stock. Like, just because you buy the stock doesn't mean you're advocating for the product. Yeah, and just because you choose not to – not making money.
0: Yeah, unless you're an activist investor, you can't do any of that ESG stuff. Okay, this week Fox 12 published an article with the following headline,
1: Alaska Airlines to Offer COVID-19 for Passengers Traveling to Hawaii from Seattle. Nice. (laughs) That's That's a We got
0: to get on that, right?
1: That's bad. Yeah, apparently they were trying to offer tests, but I guess Uh, they just scared off everyone from flying Alaska. Um yeah. Anyway, I thought those were funny. Fuck, Mary kill. Though the theme is the top three holdings of the FinTwit Index, which came out Ooh. this week: Fastly,
0: Roku, Livongo. Fuck, Mary kill. Um. Okay. Well, Livongo. I'm gonna say Livongo Teldoc. Um, which they're gonna be combined here shortly. So I'm gonna marry them just because I know them the best. Wait, is it Roku and Fastly? Yeah. Yeah. I. Oh, fuck Roku. I like them a little bit. Um, the, the stocks run up so much though that. I, Like, the business is so good, but the cat's kind of out of the bag a little bit. Fastly, I like them as well. Cats, it seems like it's out of the bag a little bit. Um, So I'll kill them, but I think they're all quality businesses that are all three are trading at pretty high prices. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's hard because, like, you don't really want to kill any of these businesses. They're all good. Uh, I guess that's why they're consensus now.
0: Um, But like we said earlier, there's not much margin of safety in a lot of these growth teams right now.
1: Do you think it matters – Like, honestly, do you think when most of Twitter
0: is consensus about a company, it ends up mattering? I don't think it matters. Is it representative
1: of retail investors?
0: Probably not, but it's good just as a filter of ideas. See what's getting more popular and see what maybe is getting less popular. I don't think it is statistically that relevant, but it's also nice just as a filter in general. Okay. Anecdotal evidence. Uh, You want to go first? Sure. Short one, so... We all know there's a lot of BS coming out through SPACs right now. Like you just mentioned earlier, the Playboy thing. Um, The only reason they're going public is so they can really, you know, grab the bag before, you know, the SPAC mania ends. But in the long term, do you think it's better because there's going to be more public companies available? So there's going to be some diamonds in the rough.
1: Yeah, but you just can't touch a SPAC. Currently. Until, like, post, like, one year after they SPAC. Yeah. Is that the term, spacking? Like, spacking, I don't know, um, no. but because you don't know what due diligence is being done, true, true, and so you have to sort of wait out and see the SEC filings because we've basically gotten the worst case scenario of what can happen with the SPAC <laughs> yeah, with Nikola, right? They, and there they could be a SPAC. few more, yeah.
0: Just wait out, you know, maybe have to wait three years, but I think it'll be better in the long run. What's a? Is there any good companies that have spacked? Open Door. Open Door. I mean, all the Chamath ones seem solid. They're all a little speculative, but, the, I mean, Virgin Galactic, I don't really like. But Do they spec? Yeah, they were the first one, um, like, a year ago. Huh. He kind of, That kind of kicked everything off.
1: Interesting. Okay, well, anecdotal evidence for me. I got back on Instagram a while back. I think the experience is slowly eroding. Mm. And you might not have noticed if you were on Instagram the whole time, but I took, like, a five-month break. I just wasn't really... I, don't know, I felt like stopping being on there. And I came back, and it feels like the experience is much worse. It, it's starting to feel like how we probably felt about Facebook like six years ago.
0: That's good because I haven't gone Not to be one of those same high and mighty because I, I, I wasn't ever on Facebook. But that's I'm good. Hopefully people are off Instagram in like three years, and I wouldn't have missed anything. It feels like they just pushed the monetization lever
1: to full blast. Really? And they're starting to ruin it. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It was just sort of like I don't spend as much time on there anymore, and maybe it's because I spend a lot of my time
0: on Twitter, but I just don't find it that valuable. A lot of people say Instagram doesn't make them feel very well because everyone's all performative, and then everyone looks like they're a ten, and you know, like they're, then they're, and their life is like way more, way better than it actually is. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's gonna do it. Ending um, on a high, ending yeah. on a very happy note, right? Yeah. Um, thank you
1: guys for listening. Thank you Kermit Capital for coming on the show. If you want to get in touch with us, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter for any show that you want us to do or things you want to talk about. I appreciate twice now people have – I think we're doing Lemonade for a deep dive here uh, within Shortly. the next two weeks or something like that. Yep. And then someone tagged us in an article, so it was good to get both people's uh, responses on that. Um, and then anything we say here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.